Brother Laughlin was my preacher, and yes, we did call our preacher brother while growing up at Westside. And there are two things I'll never forget about his office. One was the acoustical tile that covered the top half of the walls. They were there for the sake of those who came to him for counsel and were intended to remove any fear of being overheard. The second thing was a rock mounted on a wooden base that contained the following inscription, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It was there to take away the second fear of those who came for counsel, the fear of being condemned for their sins. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Where did that phrase come from? Well, it comes from the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery found in the seventh and eighth chapters of John. But it's not always been found there. In fact, only one of the early manuscripts contains it. The later manuscripts almost all include it, but it's often in a different location and sometimes in a slightly different form. Why it wasn't included in the earlier manuscripts, we're not sure. Augustine suggested that it might have been removed at a very early date because there was a fear that women would use it to justify infidelity. But apparently once it was discovered that someone had tampered with the text, it was put back, but they weren't sure where to put it. Whatever the reason, for its questionable place in the text, almost no serious scholar today questions its authenticity. No one would suggest that it's out of character with our Lord or that of the scribes and Pharisees. So even though it has weak textual evidence, most are convinced that the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery is true. And it is obviously well worth our consideration. The story opens with the scribes and Pharisees coming to Jesus to test him seeking grounds for accusation against him. And they were doing so at the expense of a woman caught in adultery. We're in John, the last verse of chapter 7, moving into 8. And everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now again, we're not certain this belongs here, but it does seem to fit the context. The chief priests and Pharisees had gone home empty-handed without Jesus because the officers sent to arrest Jesus didn't. 
They were awed by his teaching and just couldn't bring themselves to arrest him. Even Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, had come to his defense, even if rather timidly. And so, once again, they're back, but now with plan B. Jesus is again teaching in the temple. The Pharisees return with the scribes, the legal experts, and a woman who has been caught in adultery. They force their way into the midst of the crowd surrounding Jesus and plop her down right in front of him. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now, they were right. The law demanded the death penalty for adultery. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, we read, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And in Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24, we read, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And if there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The Old Testament law made it clear that the woman should be stoned. But she wasn't the only one. If she was caught in the very act, so was the man. So why wasn't he here? Now, we're all aware of the traditional inequity between moral standards for men and women, but I, I don't think that was the primary reason for his absence. There was simply no need to embarrass a fellow man if they didn't have to. And they weren't planning to execute this woman. They were just using her. In fact, the whole thing may have been a setup. They may have even set up and entrapped her. Or they may have made up the whole story. They certainly weren't above lying. Their whole purpose in bringing her to Jesus was to find grounds for accusing him. And they thought they had set the perfect trap for him. Whatever he said could be used against him, or so they thought. If he said she should be stoned, he could be accused of usurping the authority of Rome. You know, the Jews had no authority to sentence anyone to death. If he had done so, they could have turned him in as a rebel who violated Roman law, even inciting people to riot. If, on the other hand, he said she shouldn't be stoned, they could try him for countermanding the law of Moses. Either way. They thought they had him. So how did Jesus respond? Well, let's see. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. 
But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she had been in the midst. When they said, what do you say? Jesus responded by stooping down and writing on the ground. Now, I, I doubt they expected that response. Why he stooped down and wrote on the ground, we can only guess. One ancient version suggests he acted as though he didn't hear them, that he was perhaps stalling for time or trying to ignore them. Others focus on the fact that he was writing the only recorded instance of his doing so and wonder what he was writing. But we have no way of knowing what he was writing. Some suggest he was following the Roman practice of writing down his judgment before pronouncing it. Others suggest he started writing down the names of those who had been in on the setup or the name of the man who wasn't there. Or that he was listing the sins of those who brought the woman to him. And in light of what takes place next, that may be the case. But whatever, they wanted an answer and they pressed him for it. So he stood up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. But he stooped back down and continued writing. I love the response. One by one, they left. Can't you see them sheepishly looking away and then just trying to disappear? And do note that the older ones left first. Now, I don't know if they had more sins or more sense. But before long, they were all gone. And Jesus was left with the woman and the original group of people he'd been teaching. He had avoided their trap. He had won. But what was he to do with this woman? What would be the result of this whole affair? Let's read on. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. When Jesus looked up, her accusers were gone. There was no one left to condemn her. And Jesus said, he didn't condemn her either. How do you feel about that? I'm sure the woman felt pretty good. Her accusers were gone, and the one to whom she had been taken said she could go. But how do you feel about it? Does it confuse you? Does it bother you? If she had, in fact, committed adultery, shouldn't she have been punished? The law said she should, and it was God's law. 
So how could Jesus just say, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Was he changing the law? Was he ignoring the law? Absolutely not. He was simply anticipating its fulfillment. In six months, he would be on a cross. In six months, he would be paying the penalty for her sin. And for the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees and for our sins. Jesus didn't condemn her because he knew forgiveness would soon be available. However, we must note that while he did not condemn her, he didn't ignore sin or condone it. He said, go, sin no more. What she was accused of doing was sinful. And he didn't minimize it. He didn't say, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. He said, I don't condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. As far as we know, she obeyed him. And she may very well have found forgiveness for her sins by accepting him as her savior. If that's the case, she was never condemned. She was forgiven. We learn at least two very important things from this story. First of all, we learn how to respond to those caught up in sin. We know that forgiveness is available for everyone through the cross of Christ. So we condemn no one. To condemn someone is to sentence them to hell, and it's certainly not our place to do that. That is not to say, however, that we shouldn't point out the spiritual consequences of unrepentant, unforgiven sin. To remain unrepentant is to remain unforgiven, and to remain unforgiven is to guarantee condemnation. Next we note that we must identify sin as sin. Jesus said to the woman, sin no more. We can't call sin something else. We must call it what it is and paint it as dark and as offensive to God as it is. We cannot merely look away hoping it will disappear, nor can we, in effect, condone it by saying nothing. We must confront it and point out the need for repentance and for a changed lifestyle if it's needed. Jesus wasn't teaching that adultery should be overlooked. Adultery is sinful and can have eternal consequences. The writer of Hebrews made that very clear. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. We must make that known to those who are living in sinful sexual relationships and who have ears to hear. To ignore it is to condemn them to God's judgment. No, we cannot ignore sin, but we don't condemn the sinner. Through Christ, we can offer forgiveness for any repented sin. Adultery is a horrible sin with devastating consequences on every level. But it is not unforgivable. This story makes that perfectly clear. And if the stats are accurate, there are some here today who need to be reminded that fornication and adultery is forgivable and that the guilt of past sins can be washed away. And we must make very certain that our kids know that as well. Sometimes, in an attempt to spare our children the consequences of sexual sins, we so emphasize the absolutes of God in this area, hoping to keep them from these sins, that we forget to tell them that forgiveness is available for all sins, even sexual ones. The last thing we want is for our children to believe they are condemned forever because of sexual experimentation or even outright sexual rebellion. They must never be made to believe they have done something that has taken them beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. Through Christ, we are able to say to everyone, your sins need not condemn you. Through the blood of Christ, you can be forgiven. Through the blood of Christ, anyone can be washed and made whiter than snow. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, you can go your way and sin no more. If you've not found that forgiveness, I invite you to come and experience it today. If you have, I invite you to stand and celebrate it with me.